0: You know, the question isn't whether you will face the hardest thing, because eventually you will. It's what to do when it's staring you in the face. Dr. Lee Warren, a neurosurgeon in North Platte, knows that all too well. For our guest, the hardest thing was the loss of his son about 10 years ago. This morning, Dr. Warren is back on the morning conversation to offer help through hope. His newest book is called Hope is the First Dose. Dr. Warren, welcome back to The Morning Conversation.
1: Thank you. It's good to be back. Looking forward to talking
0: to you about your uh, your latest book, Hope is the First Dose. Every time, whenever we talk, whenever I think about you, listen to your podcast, Some um, I'm just like going, how does this guy have... Time to do what he does. Like I picture neurosurgeons being a little busy. How do you have time for all this?
1: I don't have time not to do it. I mm. think it's just like they say about prayer, like you, you don't have time not to pray. For no. me, the first part of my morning every day is is my quiet time with the Lord and, mm. and prayer and worship and, and all of that. That, and then I write to figure my life out, uh, figure stuff out that's going on in my own life, and that out of that spring, podcasting and communicating with people around the world with the newsletter and all of that. So for me, it's just it's the way I start my day every day. So I um, I don't know what I would do if I didn't do that.
0: So for me, I love journaling as far as its impact on my life, but it did not come easy for me. I had to like work at it. But what about you?
1: I think writing as a means of communicating yeah. was always a, a natural thing for me. I I was a kid who. Was raised in a, a home where my dad, like, was very—he—he he wasn't rigid or authoritarian, but you—you you sort of did what dad said. Right. And I w- <laughs> and I would communicate with my dad things that I couldn't say to him because I didn't want to talk back to him, and I would write him notes and write him letters, and we we had this this mm. conversation that came out of writing, and so I always had this. This insight that I could say things on paper better than I could say them with my mouth. You know, after I got through life a little bit, I went to war and we've talked before about all the things I saw in the Iraq war. And and I came home from that war with some stuff going on in my heart. I didn't understand and went through some PTSD and all of that. and, And in writing, learned to unpack emotional things that were happening. And, hmm. and uh, my wife helped me come to that understanding. So I learned how to write um, in a way that other people could read and not yeah. just my dad. Yeah, And, uh, awesome. and started writing books. And, yeah. you know, uh, Philip Yancey said he read a, uh, I wrote a self-published book about the Iraq War that Philip Yancey got a hold of. And he said, hey, if you write this like it's not for your mom, then I think we could help you get it published. And, <laughs> and so I spent a couple of years and learned how to really write. And, and he, he helped me and, and that became my first book.
0: Lee, what inspired the book for you?
1: So my previous book, I've seen the interview that we've talked about before, came out of uh, taking care of all these patients that had fatal diagnoses like brain tumors and and brain injuries and all of that. And and I was trying to write a book to help help people come to grips with how to find hope again when they were facing impossible situations. And while I was writing that, we lost our son, Mitch. He died in 2013. Hmm. And so I, I had this transformation from somebody who thought I was helping other people to being a guy who needed somebody else to help me Hmm. find my feet and find my faith again. And and so that book, I realized after it came out that that I told you sort of that we made it through losing a child and that we found our way back to faith and that we found our way back to hope. But I didn't tell you how. Hmm. As a guy who tries to be a good doctor to my patients, I thought I owed my readers and myself and my family really a, a plan. Like, here's the way that we put our lives back together. And it turns out to be consistent with what people have done all throughout scripture mm. and thousands of people that I've met now through podcasting and writing like there's a path that you can follow a treatment plan if you will since I'm a doctor that'll get you back to hope when the hardest things happen and once you get back to hope then you can actually put your life back together and that's why I called it Hope is the First Dose.
0: Lee in your latest book you, you, you talk about this thought of uh, the massive thing. What do you mean by the massive thing? Sounds a little ominous to me but
1: <laughs> It does but you know that it, it starts with this understanding that nobody gets through life unscathed. I mean, I I, I highly doubt that there's any 200-year-old listeners yes. out there listening to us because something happens to all of us in our life and it's either death or somebody we love passes away or we get a diagnosis or sometimes it's not even medical things. It's these, it's a death of a dream or it's something you've been chasing your whole life that's just not going to happen or, or somebody does something to you, abuses you or leaves you or something. But, but all of us have something, just like Jesus said in John 16, 33, when he said, in this world you're going to have trouble. But there's going to be problems. And so I, I call those, in our family, we call them the massive things the TMT these big things that happen in your life that can really throw you off of what you thought you knew your life was going to look like and so for us, it, it it was this conversation we would have about once this massive thing happens to you, what do you do next? Hmm. And I think it dawned on me at some point that we teach everybody how to do CPR in case somebody has a heart attack in front of us. And we teach people how to change flat tires, you know, if they have a flat tire. And we teach people to stop, drop, and roll if they catch on fire. But I've never caught on fire, but somebody gave me a plan for what to do. When that happens and so I thought we need a plan for what happens when the massive thing happens because it's gonna happen Lee I
0: was just thinking again by your career brain surgeon like if someone's coming to you it's bad news right so you walk with lots of people every single day that are dealing with a significant trauma in their life and so you've seen it up close and personally you write about four different types of people according to the way that they respond tell us about those four different types of people
1: we sort of fall into four categories. The first one are, uh, I call them untouchables in the book. These, these people that seem to, they come into something with a strong faith and they have their beliefs all dialed in and no matter what seems to happen to them, they get through it unscathed. The opposite of the untouchable is this group that we call crashers. And they basically seem like everything's pretty solid as long as everything's going their way. And then when they hit that massive thing, their life kind of comes apart. And what I realized is there's a group of those folks standing that don't get better on the emotional side, even if they survive the medical problem, that they came through. And the most common group is what I would call dippers. And I think this is what most of us are hmm. where we hit something hard and it messes us up for a while and we lose our way and we yell at God and we find out and and then somehow we figure it out again. We find some something solid to stand on and, and it kind of turns things back around and we end up holding on to God's promises. And then the most surprising group is what I call climbers. These are people that are already down and out. They don't have hope. They don't have faith. They don't have love. And something happens bad in their life and the prototype. A guy that I wrote about in my previous book named Joey, who his his dad abandoned him when he was a child, and his mom died when he was a baby, and he was a drug addict and he was in prison and all these things happened to him. And then he found out that he had brain cancer and I was taking care of him. And he, he approached finding out that he had brain cancer by basically saying, Of course I do. You know, why wouldn't I? Everything else happens in my life that's bad. The interesting thing with him was. Somebody came alongside him, his grandmother and then a chaplain and then and then somebody loved him. And and during the last year of his life, when he was literally dying, he he found Jesus and he, and he sort of came alive. And he told me shortly before he died that his last year had been his best year ever. Mm-hmm. And it was because he found meaning, he found something to believe in and he found love and, and all those things. There are some people who these massive things actually turn them around and they wind up better than they started. And what I learned from looking at all those people is that the people who do the best when They encounter massive things stand are the people who have the the least amount of coupling of emotion from circumstance so in other words if you think that your circumstances have to be wrapped up and have a bow on them and be perfect for you to be happy then you're going to be in trouble because Everything that you can define your life and happiness on, short of God and God's promises, can be taken from you. If you have to have a certain spouse or a certain amount of money or a certain career in order to be happy, then the bad news is there's going to come a time when you don't have that thing anymore, and then you can't be happy anymore. Mm -hmm. But if you build your life on things that can't be taken away from you and you separate emotion from circumstance, then you can learn how to take hope even in the darkest moments.
0: Lee, as we kind of go back to the conversation we had earlier this morning when we were talking about the massive thing, and you talk about it in terms of a treatment plan, and in that treatment plan, you say that hope is the first dose, uh, which again, lays into the title of the book. So what does that hope look
1: like? hopefulness is the most important aspect of recovering from just about anything that you can go through. Mm -hmm. And hopelessness turns out to be one of the deadliest things that known to man. So when the researchers look at hope, you can have hope if you have two things and they say agency, which means the ability to do something about the situation that you're in. And you have to have a pathway. So there has to be a, a reasonable path towards the thing that you're hoping for. So that's what the scientists say. And I discovered That not only agency and pathways are important, but two things from the Bible, From clearly looking at what happens in the Bible when people are hopeless and then they find hope. And in my own experience is two other things, memory and movement. And that's why I always say hope is a verb. Hope is an action word, because in order to engage hope and find it, you have to remember this isn't the first hard thing you've been through. God's done some things on my behalf in the past. And therefore, I can trust that he'll do some things again in the future for me. Movement means you've got to do something. You've got to start moving towards the light, even while it's still dark. So hope is not a magic trick. And it's not something that we sit and wait and and wish that it would show up the best story is in Lamentations chapter 3, but the Lamenter is in the middle of a five chapter story and the first two chapters are terrible and you get to chapter 3 and he's just described all these things that are happening to all the people and he says, I am the man who has suffered misery, all through the things that trauma does to you it breaks my teeth, it grinds my bones into dust and it's breaking my back, God is punishing me, all this hopeless stuff and he comes to the climax where he says I have forgotten what it feels like to have hope, and the very next verse He says this, but in this, I take hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. He reminds himself, Stan, of something that's true. I'm going to take this hope because I remember that God's gotten us through things before. And he makes that decision. And therefore, he says, I have hope. So he chooses an action word, take hope, grab it, do something about it, move towards it. And the interesting thing about that, the most important thing about it is that happens in chapter 3, of a five-chapter book, and the story isn't better at the end of the book. He's still in the middle of the problem. And so that tells us that we can choose to take hope even while the problem, especially while the problem is still happening. Right? We don't have to wait for it to get better before we can decide whether we trust God or not. We have to decide we trust him and mm-hmm. wait for it to get better.
0: Lee, you know, sometimes when you talk to people, uh, I talk to people, read books, they kind of pit happiness versus joy, right? So they kind of, well, this is happiness versus joy. This right. is joy versus happiness. So you made up a new word, hapification. Happification. happification. So, yeah, yep. so uh, since it's your word, <laughs> define it for us.
1: So happification is this, this notion that we want an action word when we're trying to find hope. I was always this guy that was optimistic and it's going to be okay and everything's going to work out. And and then all of a sudden my life started not working out. And one of the things I realized after Mitch died is I was sad, angry, and I didn't think it was going to be okay anymore. And And I lost some things that used to be important to me, but we all have this worldview. And in our worldview we see the, the world through a certain lens. And for me, that lens was was not working anymore. And I realized that in order to start feeling like I used to feel all the time and find my way back to this sort of place where I could be happy again, I was going to need to do something to, to take some sort of action. And I just almost jokingly called it this happification, this, this, I got to find some way to get myself back to a happy state again. And I think it's important to parse that out when you say joy versus happiness, I think it's one of the great tricks of the devil to tell us that we're not supposed to be happy as Christians or to be to care about being happy. And we talk about joy or blessedness sort of spiritualized way like, oh, it's okay to be miserable because we've got something better coming and just hang in there and it'll be okay. But if you look at what Jesus actually said in the Beatitudes, the, the word in the Greek, when he says, blessed are they who this and blessed are they who that, the word actually is Makarios, and that translates most literally to happy. And blessed is a a A word that the translators made up to try to spiritualize it but jesus was literally saying if you learn how to be humble and you learn how to be meek and you learn how to be all these other things you'll be happier than if you don't he's literally saying that he came here john 10 10 i came the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy but i came that you might have life and have it abundantly he's talking about not some spiritualized thing that we can wait for in the afterlife he's talking about now and it's uh, the John ten ten is the the after answer to John sixteen thirty three, which says in this world. You're going to have trouble john 10 10 says i came here in this hard world so that you can have an abundant life so for me i needed not to find some sanguine joy i needed to find happiness again even though i had lost my son and i try to i try to tell that story in the book in a way to tell you that you can be broken and sad and grieving and bereaved and you'll always be that thing but you can also be happy again you can it's possible and you need a plan to do that. And that, that's what I tried to give you in the book.
0: So, Lee, going back to uh, some of the analogies that you kind of pull from the medical world. Uh, so, you talk about doing a biopsy of your thoughts. How do we take a biopsy of our thoughts?
1: I can put you in a functional MRI scanner, and I could ask you to think about something that makes you happy, and I could show you what your neurotransmitters are doing in real time when you think about something that makes you happy. And then I could ask you to think about something that makes you sad or angry, and I could show you a picture of your brain changing its chemistry when you choose to think about a different thing. We know now that your brain directly influences the neurotransmitter production in your brain, which is what creates the way that you feel. And not just that, it creates what your hormones statuses are and how every cell in your body reacts. To what you think about. We know now that you are in control to a very high degree of what happens in your body. You can take a mouse and you can expose that mouse to a certain smell, a cherry blossom smell. And when they smell it and react to it, you can shock them and teach them to be afraid of that smell. Mm. Okay. And then they found that the offspring of those mice who were never exposed to the shock. Are also afraid of the smell of cherry blossoms. Hmm. You know, what that means is we genetically change our bodies when we expose ourselves to certain things and those experiences and feelings are passed on to our children. That whole science now is called epigenetics. This is what Jesus, what God was talking about in the Bible when he talks about generational curses. When certain sins or certain problems pass on to our children, it's not that he's punishing our children, it's that our DNA changes in response to what we do in our lives and what we think about. And if you react to those negative thoughts, then you're starting a chain reaction of reactions to things that were never true in the first place. Thought biopsy technique is just... I teach people to say, knowing that most of our thoughts aren't true and knowing the devastating consequences of reacting to thoughts that aren't true, we we learn to put a little pause in there where we say, wait, I'm having this thought that says, it's my fault that my son died. I should have been there. I should have done something different. And instead of reacting to that thought, I grab it and put it under the microscope like a surgeon would. And I say, is that thought true? And if it's true, is it something I need to, to do something about or I need to react to? Or what can I do to make it better? Rather than just running with the worst case scenario, automatic negative thought that pops in. And so learning how to biopsy your thoughts and get back in control of them before you react to them creates an opportunity for you to find your way back to hope instead of despair when something happens.
0: Lee, as you're talking, I was reminded of a public service kind of commercial when I was growing up. This is your brain. This is this is your brain on this drug, right? As you're talking, I'm thinking, no, this is your brain, and you can actually physically see it with the tech that you use. This is your brain on falsehood and fears. This yep. is your brain. This is your brain on truth. That's kind of interesting to think about that.
1: I use that same analogy in the book. When t- it's amazing that we had the same thought. It's in there. When your brain is in the skillet because of the massive thing is frying it up, then you have two choices. You can leave it in there and let it get cooked to a crisp, and and let your your life be burned up by the TMT, or you can get it out. And, and if you get it out, it's still going to be injured a little bit and singed a little bit, but it's still usable. And your life has still can have purpose and meaning, just like that egg, if you cook it long enough that it's still valuable before it burns all the way up.
0: Yeah, so good. Lee, there's someone listening to us this morning who maybe even today, yesterday, this week, entered into that TMT experience. The massive thing has happened in their life. They've lost a loved one. They've lost their health. They've lost their job. And they're in the thick of it. What would you speak to them?
1: So the first thing is, I'm sorry that that happened. The very first thing you need to know is when you're wounded, whatever the source of it is, even if it's self-inflicted. I mean, sometimes these things that happen is because something happened that we did. So no matter what the source of your wound is, all wounds need first aid. They need immediate treatment to stop the bleeding. And, and when it's an emotional wound, the first thing is give yourself space and time to hurt. And if you don't let it hurt, and you if you do something to stop it too early, like drinking or something that's going to cover up the pain, but not let it heal, then you're going to create some secondary wounds That you don't have to create. So the first thing is take a breath, get around people who care about you, and let this healing process begin by experiencing what you're supposed to feel. The second thing is know that there is gonna come a time out there where this wound will begin to heal and you'll start to feel better. As long as you don't give up, there will come a day when it starts to feel lighter. And I can tell you this because I'm 10 years into losing my son now. And in that 10 years, It never stops hurting. It never stops being true that we went through this horrible thing. But God's promises start showing up and he's close to the brokenhearted and he's got a plan for you and this wound will begin to heal and you can just hold on tight and you know it's going to come and don't give up.
0: Lee, we've spoken to the person this morning that uh, is going through trauma right now. Uh, There are many people also who have someone that they know that is going through trauma. They don't necessarily know how to respond. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to do the wrong thing. Coach us up here a little bit this morning. So what would you say?
1: So the first thing is like you can know that there is immense value in showing up and putting your arms around people and saying something simple like, this is so hard and I'm so sorry. Those two things never hurt anybody. They always help. I had a friend named Zane who showed up at our house shortly after we heard about Mitch dying. He gave us a big hug and he said, you're going to need something at some point, And I'm going to be over in that corner. And when you need something, you tell me and I'll go do it. And he showed up five or six days in a row. He never said a word. He didn't get in the way. And he ran errands for us when we needed something. And that was one of the most helpful things is just somebody to show up and sit down and be there. The second thing, though, if you're a Christian, especially, I suspect everybody listening is make sure that if you're going to give somebody advice or counsel that you've got good theology behind it. Some of the things that we say to people, things like, I guess God needed another angel. Those things are always harmful and they're bad theology. People don't become angels when they die. Angels are different than people. And then things like God needed him more than you do. And you say to yourself, like, God has the entire universe. He has the cattle on a thousand hills and all the stars answer him. But he needed to take my son. Just make sure that what you're saying has the potential to help and that it's true. And I can give you a good example with, with me after losing Mitch. Like Romans eight twenty eight 28 was horrible to hear right off the bat. I couldn't see how it could ever be good that I lost my son. But I started writing and I started podcasting and writing books and all that out of the pain of trying to help my family. And twice in the 10 years since we lost our son, I've gotten an email from somebody that said, today was the day that I was going to kill myself because I was so hopeless and something you wrote made me decide not to commit suicide today. That's not a good thing that I lost my son son. It won't ever be a good thing. But that's a way that God keeps that promise and starts to redeem some of the things that happened to us and show us that there are good things in the world that have happened because we stayed faithful and kept persisting after we lost Mitch. And and in a way, to me, that's something that Mitch would be proud of. Like his life has value and purpose 10 years beyond its earthly extent because he's keeping people alive out here because his dad has given people hope after learning how to find hope again after he died. That's a way that Romans 8, 28 is true, but you can't see that or hear it the day after it happens. You got to hear that later.
0: Wow, Dr. Warren, this has been so helpful. Thank you for caring enough about your readers and your listeners to write this follow-up to your first book. So good. Having a plan and a path is just what we need. Thank you for spending the morning with us.
1: Thanks. That was awesome. Good to talk to you again.